Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. In the year AD 312, Rome is teetering on the brink of war and Constantine's army is on the move. Constantine had been to Rome only once before and on that visit a decade earlier, he had come by sea. Now he had just spent the better part of three weeks descending the Flaminian Way, the main artery between northern Italy and the capital. It was a rugged road that crossed two passes in the Apennines, at one point, it even pierced through an archway carved out of the mountain itself. Yet, by the end of the highway's course, as it approached the capital city along the Tiberis River, the surrounding countryside was a flat upland. And it was there, just a few miles short of the walls, that Constantine ordered his soldiers to set up camp. It would be their last field bivouac. The next tent that each man occupied would be within sight of Rome's walls. The final battle with Maxentius was coming soon. On the Rhine frontier, a Germanic pagan joins the Roman army as a spy, while in Rome itself, Flavia, the pious daughter of a senator, finds herself caught in anti-Christian politics as she works for the church. The conqueror tells the story of a time when devotion to the pagan gods was fading and the Roman Empire was being conquered by the sign of the cross. In this edition of Historical Fiction, Tristan Hughes talks to Brian Litvin, author of The Conqueror. This is Historical Fiction. Brian Litvin, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Now, we're talking about your new book, The Conqueror, a book which is set in arguably one of the most important decades in the history of Christianity. Yes, definitely a time when, certainly in church history, but also in just the regular sweep of history, that there was a pivot point in which you could sort of see one age giving away to another, and what a perfect time to have a novel in such a momentous period. So could you provide us a brief description of this period for your book, The Conqueror? Yeah, so it's set in the age of Emperor Constantine, who most people have heard of, even if they don't know too much about him. But uh, he was the first emperor who eventually accepts Christianity. In other words, the Roman emperor. And so the, the ones before that, going all the way back to Nero, were often persecutors or the empire itself could break out in these times as 
people have these images of Christians thrown to the lions and things like that. And so that did happen, not everywhere, not always, but it certainly was a possibility, both locally or even eventually on the imperial level. And Constantine is exploring this faith not as something to persecute, but as something to adopt himself. And so when he does that, and to the extent that he does that, it shifts the age of persecution and the age of potential persecution into the age of first a kind of tolerance and acceptance, and then eventually Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire and goes on into the Middle Ages and sort of Christendom. So it's a real pivot point in that way. And you mentioned there how there had been previous persecution and a bit of background to this time period. When the book starts, the persecution of the Christians had been very recent, hadn't it? In fact, it's still happening in some parts of the empire. So what maybe we can talk about is the way that the rule of the empire had been divvied up. And depending on who was the emperor over the, the section that you lived in, you were potentially still experiencing it or recently had, uh, knew someone who had died as a martyr, or it was in your recent memory. And so it was a very tenuous time because maybe if it wasn't happening to you, it could with a change of power. So a real liminal period in which one age was giving way to another, it hadn't ended yet, might crop up again, or it might go into a time of peace, which is what eventually did happen. You said there how the empire had been divvied up. Now, this is a Roman empire, very different to the one which is iconic in most TV series or what we have in the normal frame of mind. This is very different to Trajan and Hadrian, isn't it? It is. That's sort of the high empire. And people know that, maybe especially in context of sort of the birth of Christianity, the time of Jesus of Nazareth, the time of the apostles, the time of Nero. And that's the first century, and that, that's when the empire was at its height. But we're having this novel unfold in the fourth century, which is the 300s AD, and it's late antiquity. It's the kind of the beginning of the end. The empire is beginning to fall to the so-called barbarians, not just yet, but it's on the horizon. And uh, in that period, Christianity is being considered more so as a potential religion that high-ranking people could adopt and that's part of the background for the story, for sure. So this story takes place in the early 4th century, and it's the time of great religious change within the Roman Empire. And yourself, you are an expert in this period in history. Did it help having this vast amount of knowledge to write this fictional book? Yes, it did. I mean, uh, you know, you hear the word vast and you, <laughs> you think, oh, I don't, I'm not vast. Someone else has vast. I'm just modest. But, what, you know, I have a little bit. But... Uh, I've been living in this literature for a long time, both in grad school, my PhD, publishing scholarship, and so forth, and so I know it. And I do think that's different than some novelists who get fascinated with a period, and they kind of adopt it, and they kind of, for a time, they read the, the books about it, maybe secondary sources, not primary, but they research it, and they say, okay, I'm going to put those things and sprinkle them into my story. And the approach that I had was more, I think, organic, where the knowledge base came first and the story welled up from within the knowledge base. And I think it allows there to be a kind of leavening of that historical background more naturally into the plot. And did you have to do any further research for doing this book? The research came probably on two fronts. I knew the theology, I knew the basic framework, 
I knew the texts that I needed to engage with, but I had to drill into chronology a little bit just to make sure where you've got a figure like an Emperor Constantine or other prominent ones that, you know, you don't have them in places or in times that they weren't actually there. And then the other thing for me was to drill into the the archaeology a little more so that you have this sense of place. Like, for example, the characters go up on a pass. Today it's the pass, the St. Bernard Pass, Switzerland and Italy, where the St. Bernard dogs are from in history. But this is much earlier time and they didn't have the dogs there yet with the barrels under their collars, as we imagine. But that pass was a Roman pass, too back in those days. And so I had to figure out, okay, so, oh, there was a temple for Jupiter up there. Okay, well, that was over here, and this was there, and you can still see those remains there today. So the archaeology wasn't something I knew as well, and I had to dig in to really give that sense of place. And did it help being a European setting? Were you able to go and visit the sites to be able to get a further idea of what it was like 2,000 years ago? I think that's part of the genesis of this story, because for many years, as a professor, I was leading study abroad trips with students, and I had some flexibility about what we went and saw, and so I went to places that I wanted to see. And if I came to a new trip and I could go to a new place, we said, well, let's go there and learn. And so I've just been accumulating certainly a lot of knowledge about Rome and kind of what's outside of Rome, and you can go visit the catacombs, you can visit the villa of Maxentius or the remains of it. St. Bernard's Pass and, you know, just Britain and <laughs> as a, a number of places. Roman Britain, of course, is important. So, yeah, I have a sense of the landscape and the smell and you can almost smell the lavender or something or the olive trees or whatever when you're writing. And that really comes out in the story for sure. I get what you mean. I think one of the most favorite quotes in my memory is one that's like, you've heard about Pompeii, but very different go and visit Pompeii, you know, actually going and yeah. seeing these sites, how it can impact a story like as for yourself. You need to have had a little pumice stone in your teeth at the end of your day from just inhaling the dry dust of Mount Vesuvius. And then you can say, OK, I understand what that might have been like. <laughs> well, you mentioned Roman Britain just there. And one of the things I find most fascinating about your book is actually where it all begins. So where does it all begin? In which city? Well, you would call it York, and it's a little ways north of you, probably a train ride, but they called it Eboracum, and it was the basically like the administrative center for northern Britain. It wasn't right at Hadrian's Wall, but it was kind of the city or the town that controlled that northern borderland, that hinterland, and so the prologue begins in York. So why do you decide to start this fictional book about these hugely important characters in a city that we wouldn't immediately associate with one of the major cities of the Roman Empire. Part of that is when you're writing historical fiction, you don't make things up. You're limited by what and when <laughs> you know happened. And so if you're doing a Constantine novel, so Constantine was his father, Constantius Chlorus, as he's called, died in the year 306 at York. And uh, it was in that place then immediately that his legions and his mercenaries, the Alemanni, they crowned him for the first time, this youth who became the emperor at that moment. And so it has that sense of crowning him and starting a trajectory. But also, I will say, there's ocean, and certainly in the Roman Empire, they didn't know what was beyond the ocean. So Britain felt like peripheral to Rome. And so to launch a trajectory, there's this kind of 
coming from the border, coming from the edges, coming from the frontier, whether that's Britain or the Rhine frontier also where a lot takes place. And this like arrow that's like shooting and heading toward Rome for a culmination. And so Eboracum is like the launching pad for the rocket that's headed to Rome, I guess you'd say. It's fascinating. Yeah. And that seems like a constant theme as it were. It's starting in the frontiers, but it is all pushing towards this great conflict within the nucleus of the late Roman Empire. Yes, and yet also you have a plot line that starts in Rome, where you have the enemy of Constantine and the major heroine, who is a senator's daughter, and she is in Rome. And so the, the first act is called Convergence. And what I'm really trying to do there is build this sense that you have this kind of destiny coming toward Rome, both imperial in the sense of Constantine coming for conquest, but also the hero coming for his tasks and kind of coming on the way, heading there. And then the receiving end is Rome with its enemy figure, but also this heroine figure who is the uh, female protagonist, sort of ready and wanting to contribute to what's on the way. And so there's this two-pronged convergence that is really driving the first act for sure. It was near sunset by the time they reached the domus of the bishop. A doorkeeper escorted them into the atrium and gave them cold water from a jug. While they waited for their host, Rex examined the niche in the wall for the household gods. Instead of idols, the niche held a large book, but since it was in Greek, he could make out only a few words. From the writing's theological nature, he guessed they were probably some of the Christian scriptures. When Bishop Miltiades arrived, he greeted Flavia with a chaste kiss and bowed his head to Rex. Quickly, they explained their plight to him. The stately priest with oiled silver hair listened as if no one else in the world mattered. We have some hidden rooms here for situations like this, he told Flavia with a sly smile. The Catholic Church bought this house in a time of persecution. We know how to hide our own if we need to. So let's talk a bit about this heroine figure in Rome. Who is she? Well, she goes by Flavia, Lady Junia Flavia. She's a daughter. She's actually a teenager because of the span of time that I'm planning to do these three novels. You have to start with her being pretty young. So she's kind of 17-ish, which was a young woman in those days. And uh, yeah, she's a senator's daughter. And so privileged in that way, but not really a snobby girl. She's a Christian. And so it sets up a plot line where you have an early Christian and you have a window into the Roman church and she's interacting with the Bishop of Rome at the time, Miltiades. And it sets up a trajectory where the guy that's coming to her is not. He's an adherent of the old gods, the Germanic gods and or the pagan gods. And so you have this kind of religious clash happening in the context of a political clash, happening in the context of a romantic clash. And so there's a lot of clashing going on in this book, for sure. You mentioned there the um, Bishop of Rome, Miltiades, and that sounds strikingly a non-Roman name, more like a Greek name. It is a Greek name. Yeah, it's an interesting, the early Christian church, like the early bishops of Rome, they didn't even start using Latin as a Christian language or a literary language until the 200s and beyond. Christianity came from the East, it was perceived as a Greek religion. There's a lot of evidence that the earliest generations of Christians weren't really 
the people of Rome in the sense of kind of old Italian families, but were the poor, were the immigrants, former Jews, slaves that had been imported from other places. The scriptures, of course, the New Testament and also the Septuagint, the Old Testament, were in Greek. There was a Latin, but it was really not very good Latin. So Greek and Easternness permeated the Western church for a long time and certainly still did at this time. In regards to the heroine and her senatorial family, you mentioned that she's an early Christian, and you mentioned earlier, of course, there was persecution in Rome not that long before. Was it extraordinary in historical Rome at this time for a senator's family to have embraced the Christian faith? Not in the fourth century. I wouldn't say that it was like common. Certainly it becomes more common. That's part of what Constantine does is he makes it like, hey, that would be a good idea to join up with the boss and kind of have his same religion. Like people today say, I'm going to go to church where the boss goes because <laughs> it might help me. But even before that happened, you had some going back to a very early time where aristocrats or upper class or wealthier people would convert. Often the wife of the family would. And then you'd have that would be a house church where they would invite in the poor to fellowship with them. So certainly it's not a stretch to have a Christian senator or a devoted daughter who is very pious in terms of her observation of Christianity. But at the same time, it was still a minority religion and could be looked on askance by many people and could potentially still be persecuted. So again, it's that liminal period where you haven't left one age behind, but a new age is dawning. And that's part of what makes the novel so interesting to me. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Let's talk about that other major figure in Rome then, the evil figure, as it were. Who is the Emperor Maxentius? So he's an emperor too, and that's part of what we have in this period, which is that You've divided the empire up into at least four emperors, but <laughs> a couple other people thought, well, I should be one too, or it wasn't clear who the four were and who weren't. And if you had an army, you might be able to make it stick. So Maxentius is one of the figures vying to be in this, what they call the imperial college. And uh, he thinks he's in and <laughs> others beg to differ. And that's why it comes to a, a battle. But in the case of Maxentius, he was the son of one of the original founders of the four. And so he thought he had a kind of dynastic reason to be able to join after his father died or was kicked out. He's actually Constantine's brother-in-law. His sister is Fausta, who's married to Constantine. See, it's so complex because there's other connections too. So it's not just a clash of political enemies. It's not just a clash of Christian like Constantine versus a pagan like Maxentius. It's two brother-in-laws duking it out, you know, and so it's very complex for sure. And because it sounds so complex, this deteriorating of relations, it must have taken a considerable amount of time. I mean, when Constantine is crowned at York, what is his relationship with Maxentius at the start? Is it harmonious? Constantine was pretty smart in that he sat back 
and he let the big dogs fight it out and he didn't antagonize anybody too much, but he built his strength through victories unrelated to the four and against the barbarians and kind of building loyalty in the army and gaining experience as a general. And then once some of the other players had been taken out, he was able to make a strike against Maxentius, and there were two. He had an ally, Licinius, who also wanted Rome as the prize, and so it was going to be kind of which one of the two could get it first. Probably whoever got there first was going to win, and, and in fact, Constantine got there first, and he won. So yes, he bided his time. He was married to the sister of his enemy, and then when the moment was right, he struck fast and struck hard and claimed Rome for himself. And how do we see Constantine's character evolve during the process of this book as it gets closer and closer to Rome itself? Yeah, that's a good question, Tristan. I mean, one of the things maybe that I have in mind and to keep in mind here is that this is a three-book series, and the third one will be set in the time of the Council of Nicaea and the Doctrine of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed, and some of the other Constantinian things that are happening in that time, and then there's one in between those two periods. So it's a multi-year, you know, decade or two time span. And because of that, I don't accelerate Constantine's evolution too much. Like what he is in the late 320s is not what he is at the beginning of this book. So there's some evolution, but it's not complete. He's a man on a journey. But I, I will say what he probably realizes is that he really does want to make a break with the pagan gods, maybe Apollo and Hercules and some that he had associated with or were part of his background, and transition to Jesus. But the Jesus he's adopting is not very different from Apollo or the sun god, Saul. Both of those would be sun gods or victory gods, right? Because the sun is triumphant every day over the forces of darkness. And so he kind of used Jesus, who is also a resurrection god, a victory god in that sense, in still somewhat pagan ways. And so his movement is towards Christianity, but that evolution is not complete. He hasn't yet embraced the Jesus as is known in the Bible, but the Jesus that's filtered to him through the pagan grid that he already has. It sounds like a soft Christianity, if we can yeah. put it in one way. Well, and scholars debate it because you could call it a soft Christianity and others more cynically will say, no, he wasn't. He didn't understand it yet. And so it wasn't authentic. Or you could, some people say he never really, really believed it. He just seemed like a ploy. His conversion was just a way of kind of placating certain political group that would aid him. So scholars do debate the authenticity, the timing of Constantine's conversion. I think by the end of his life, you know, he seems pretty robustly committed to Christianity as he knows it at the time. How different was Christianity in the fourth century compared to what we consider Christianity today? I mean, the first way to answer that or to think about trying to answer it is to say, well, what even is Christianity today? Because you say, well, if you mean like the Roman Catholic Church as it would be experienced by someone in the Trastevere neighborhood in Rome, that's one Christianity. If you talk about snake handling Pentecostals in Appalachia, that's another Christianity. And so it's hard to answer that. Some of contemporary Christianity would have things that are closer to the ancient church and other forms today, they don't resemble it very much at all. But to try to answer your question, the early Christians 
they were very devoted to the risen Christ. There was a kind of resurrection focus that today we tend to think of the cross as you know the main thing, the cross, and they didn't deny the cross, but the risen Christ and his victory, the victory motif, where the powers of Satan and death and the things that hold us in bondage, the gods, they might strike you, but now I'm free of that. And so this liberating figure, this triumphant figure that even death in the grave could not hold comes to the fore and they want to participate in that. They want to create community around that. They're a community that doesn't expect, here would be a difference. Most Christians today, at least in the West, would think, yeah, the society respects us. They might not be Christian, but they don't have a state church. Well, I mean, you still have a state church, but I mean, even if it's kind of just in the background, yeah, it's it respects who we are. The early Christians had the opposite. They would be like Christians in North Korea today, where they say, I am not buying into that leader cult, no matter what you say, but I might die. And but we're going to create an underground cell, and we're going to do this thing regardless of what the state mandates for me. And we don't expect anybody to really think we make a lot of sense. But we believe it, and we love that God, and we have a hope in what's going to happen in the afterlife, and so it's worth it. And that's closer to what the early Christians were like. One of your main fictional protagonists is a pagan. And how do you use this hero and his understanding as a pagan of the Christian belief? Is he able to yeah. understand it? He is and he isn't. You know, I mean, that sounds like I'm dodging your question. But it's around him enough that he doesn't scratch his head and say, I've never heard of that. What is that? That might have been plausible in the first century. But by the fourth century, if you're living in the empire, you probably heard of it. You know they exist and you might think they're wacky. And he's wrestling with, like, what are these claims? And are they for me? So he certainly could get around the idea of a victory god. But there are other aspects of Christ that seem foreign to him, like turn the other cheek. But I'm a special forces operative. I have to draw blood. I'm a killer. That's like what a soldier does at the heart of things. And so he's wrestling with that. And then he wrestles with the exclusive claims of Christianity because one of the main points of the early Christians is Jesus is Lord. Like that's the confession. That's the core confession of the ancient church. Jesus is Lord. And the Lord term means not Caesar. There's this kind of exclusivity. You can't bow to Jupiter and Jesus. You can't say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. And so there's this, it's me and only me aspect to Christianity and to what Jesus Christ himself, you know, the Lordship of Christ demands. And Rex, the character, is wrestling with, can I do that? Or can I meld Jesus into Hercules? And I just kind of perceive him one way, but the female character can kind of do her Jesus thing and I'll call him Hercules and they're both strong and, you know, we'll each agree. No. <laughs> she says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. So that's part of the motif of the conqueror, is the lordship of Christ. Do you think Rex's conundrum with Christianity reflects a theme that may well have been occurring in the 4th century in the Roman Empire with all the people who've been grown up in families which have been worshipping pagan gods for centuries, but now wrestling with this idea of Christ and the whole idea of conversion coming to the fore? Yes, and it was a conversion because unlike today where we kind of think that in the West there's a kind of Judeo-Christian background, you're kind of in it already, and then you decide whether you want to sort of make it a personal thing for you more so, 
to come into Christianity in the ancient church was to leave something as well. I mean, when you got baptized, you did it naked and you took everything off. The women unloosened their hair so that there was nothing connected to them. You know, they were completely being unattached from the old and they went down in the water and they came up again and they were given a new garment and they renounced Satan and all of his works in the water. And so there was this newness of conversion, which meant turning your back on the old because the old was an institutionalized pagan system. So yeah, the conversion, as it often is in many countries today, there's for some Muslim countries, for example, if you convert, if you get baptized, it's more than just your personal choice. It's your repudiation of your worldview and your parents, and it requires cost. And that's what Rex, in part, is wrestling with, is the cost. Well, let's talk about one of the big climaxes of the book, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, this great clash between the two historical figures of Constantine and Maxentius. Why is this battle so significant in the history of Christianity? I think the answer for that is that it's highly symbolic because the reality is, is that Constantine won many battles and you could probably pick a few others and say, actually, those turned the tide even more. He does win the battle, but he doesn't win it and then from that become the emperor of the entire, it's a kind of regional victory for him more than an empire-wide victory at that point. But what has happened is that the story of it has grown large. And part of that is the famous vision and or dream that preceded it in some way. Sometimes people say kind of the night before the battle. That really isn't what the sources say. But there was at one point a vision of something in the sky that the emperor Constantine interpreted as a cross and that he should take the cross and make it his victory emblem. And then he also had a dream, maybe unrelated to the vision in the sky, or maybe at the same time, where the dream figure tells him to put the symbol of the cross on his soldier's shields before the Milvian Bridge. So that when he does go fight his enemy, his brother-in-law and enemy, Maxentius, at this famous bridge, which is north of Rome, kind of doesn't feel like north of Rome today. It's in kind of a suburban area next to the soccer stadium. At that time, it was out in the countryside a little bit. And when he wins there, it's perceived as winning because he adopted the cross and he took Jesus as his patron, as his victory patron. So it's a major step along the way. And it's soon after that that he issues a decree of tolerance of the Christians called the Edict of Milan. So it's viewed symbolically as turning the tide from the age of persecution to the age of official imperial favor, I guess you would say. So as you say right now, this bridge is not the be-all and end-all, as it were. This change to Christianity, you know, within a hundred years, the empire is mainly Christian. But this is a slow, gradual process which takes many, many years to accomplish. It does. There's a sense in which you're exactly right. And, and I'd say the fourth century is kind of where this happens, where you start out with the great persecution of Diocletian. And by the end of that century, not under Constantine himself, although he starts this trajectory, but by the end of the century, you actually have the adoption by the empire 
of Christianity saying, this is our state religion now, shut the temples, tear them down, turn them into churches. The Roman Empire is now officially Christian, and that happens in the span of 100 years. But there's a real acceleration happening in this age of Constantine, so in that sense, if you're living through it, if you have a life lived in the early 4th century, you go from a period of persecution to a period of acceptance. So, for example, at the Council of Nicaea, they talk about figures who come with injuries and scars and maimings, bishops who come to debate the Trinity, but they had been tortured in the persecution. So it's a huge shift at that time. Having these two main fictional characters, say one pagan, one Christian, in this transforming time, is it a nice way to emphasize how you know people from these different religious faiths could work together for a similar political motive? I think it does partly illustrate that in the sense of like the two protagonists. I wouldn't say first and foremost that they're symbols of something. I would say first and foremost they're humans having a great adventure that you're going to really enjoy, you know, sort of going along with. So, you know, I don't want to have over-allegorized them in the sense. But yes, there's a sense because the Germanic barbarians had been defeated and oppressed by Rome and the Christians had been oppressed by Rome. And so they have that in common is that they had been under the hobnailed boot of Imperial Rome. At the same time, they both have a stake in seeing good Rome prosper. So the Rex, you know, he joins the army and he wants to have a good ruler. He wants to have constant, he wants to be part of the, the bounty that the empire could offer. And so too does Flavia as a Christian. She doesn't want to crush the empire. She wants to see the empire tolerant. And who would have imagined that it could even be imperially supportive of her faith. So they work together to bring good Rome, as they see it, out of cruel and rapacious Rome that they had both experienced. Your book, The Conqueror, it's but the first in a new series. What have we got to come? So much more adventure, I would say. This one culminates in a battle. But the Civil War continues, and so there's this kind of battlefield bravery and good guys, bad guys chasing danger. It kind of, you know, it ramps up even, if you can imagine that. And so the romance develops. I don't want to give too much away, but you've got this strong, handsome guy and this beautiful woman, and they're in these circumstances, and their faiths don't match. But there's the unfolding of a, a romantic plot line. There's the epic adventure. There's the sweeping saga it's not just Italy here and the next ones, they kind of have to move around the empire. And then in the third one, as I said, you get into some of these things like the Council of Nicaea or Jerusalem, the finding of the true cross, uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, the uncovery of the, the tomb of Christ and kind of the intrigue, the beginnings of the building of St. Peter's Basilica and the recovery of the bones of St. Peter, which are the basis for this thing that we call the Vatican today, or we call St. Peter's Basilica today, which has its roots in this very time period. So popes and emperors and civil war and romance and theology and spiritual insight and monks and hidden bones and mysteries and sneaking around in the catacombs and need I say more? <laughs> that's, that's enough right there, maybe, for sure. Brian. It's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tristan. It's been an honor. Historical fiction. 